Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The Bigger Picture. Going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. Joining me for The Bigger Picture today is political commentator Mike Indian, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Uh, Mike, where are we going to begin um, today? Well, I think we have to begin for the first time looking actually at what's happening inside Westminster. And I don't just mean in terms of political events, but I mean in terms of what actually happens, the the conduct and behaviour and the culture that exists around Parliament. And those of us who work in Westminster have to have a degree know that it has a unique ecosystem. It operates in a certain way. It is a. It is a. There are certain things that are a given quality in politics. For example, it, it, Westminster is, is is a. It is a gossip-fueled environment. It is an environment in which media briefings and a certain degree of perhaps subterfuge are, are part mm. of politics and, and subtlety within that. But there's also a question of conduct and how it affects certain groups of people, but also how these groups of people relate that back to excuses for their own behaviour as well. So the top thing to discuss this week is that the Mail on Sunday produced an article at the weekend uh, written by Glenn Campbell, who's their political editor, uh, about Labour's deputy leader, Angela Rayner. Now, those of us who of a certain age will remember the Sharon Stone film, Basic Instinct. Mm. Uh, the report contained, the article contained arguably some of the most uh, disgusting briefing that has been put out by against an opposition politician in uh, recent times. It, it compared, it accused Miss um, Rayner in of using her her physical attributes to try and distract uh, the prime minister during sessions in the commons and uh, contained some equally shocking language saying that she was resorted that was arguably not only sexist but also classist as well saying that she couldn't help to compete with the prime minister's oxbridge debating training now somebody has briefed this to a friendly journalist at the mail there are a whole series of things we could talk about this, but the headline response has been a collective rallying round in Westminster, particularly of senior female journalists and politicians around Angela Rayner. And Angela is somebody who exudes, you know, quite a no-nonsense tough exterior, but she's been open about how distressing she has found this reporting. And it's forced the Prime Minister, and I say forced because I don't, you know, this, this briefing has clearly been sanctioned at some level, in my mm. in my opinion, by number 10. Uh, this is the you know, there's stuff happening around Rishi Sunak that made its way into the papers recently that definitely you know that definitely came from Downing Street. That number ten have now been forced to go on the hunt effectively for this source, or, or perhaps if you're more excited, hunt of a scapegoat for this. But this underpins a wider problem that has been going on in Westminster for a number of years around 
the behaviour and conduct of politicians. And we've seen recently the former Speaker John Burko banned from Parliament. Uh, former members can access Parliament for a past John Burko will no longer have, have that privilege. There's also been there were questions around sexual misconduct. There was a, an article in the Sunday Times this week that claimed that uh, up to 56 MPs could be investigated for potential uh, sexual misconduct claims. And of course, we've had the conviction recently of Emran Ahmed Khan, the uh, disgraced MP for Wakefield, who has been found uh, guilty of uh, sexual misconduct with a minor in 2008 and other allegations in 2010. And we really must begin by holding up a mirror, I think, to what is modern political culture, because we live in a time when Although we have a record high numbers of not just women, but also a variety of emerging minorities inside the political spectrum as well. And, and roughly now just under a third of MPs are women. They're, they're still a minority members of the House of Lords. There are other, you know, uh, other groups in there, so not just ethnic minorities, but also um, LGBTQ. We have had our first MP openly declare as uh, transgender as well. It can't escape people's notice, though, that there are numerous conservative politicians who are subject to allegations. But even today, Liam Byrne, the former Labour cabinet minister and frontbencher, is going to be suspended from Parliament for two days for bullying. So it is fair to say, Simon, there is a toxic culture operating in Westminster these days. Particularly... I can't remember how long ago the expenses scandal was, but I mean, many people haven't quite forgiven MPs no. as a body for that. No, but the we can take these we can take these um cases as indi as individuals but there is undoubtedly clearly despite the efforts that have been put in place considerably by uh, the common speaker lindsay hall the parliamentary authorities uh former cabinet ministers like um andrea ledsom senior women like harriet harman to try and create a culture where parliamentary staff members of parliament uh, particularly those who within the Westminster space aren't straight white men can mm. feel um, safe, but the checks appear to be inadequate. And we've even had the prime minister himself being subject to a standards committee investigation, seeking to undermine that body because MPs are a self-policing entity. They have a committee that oversees their standards and how they use their privileges. But these are these come with a government majority. And I think it should worry people. I don't want to make a party political point out of this, but there are a number of conservative views, including uh, Rob Roberts, who's had allegations made against him, who still have, who still are members of parliament. And the mechanisms for people for being removed, the bar is actually still set quite high, even though we have parliamentary recall. Mm. So Imran Ahmed Khan, for example, despite this conviction, despite the fact the Tories have removed the whip, the timing of Imran Ahmed Khan's departure from the House and the subsequent by-election is still up to him. Um, but let's let's focus on the cultural point, first of all, with, in relation to Angela Rayner here as well. And undoubtedly sanctioned from the very top, it's a symptom of the un, the very strong uh, culture, uh, masculine culture that still imbues Westminster. And Miss Rayner is she's by no means uh, you know someone who employs the kid gloves in politics. You know those mm. of us who've been following politics for a long time will remember her referring to the Conservatives as scum. And I think uh, the, the in in a, in a fringe event. So the the whole language of politics has become arguably uh, more 
angry, even in the time I've been covering it as well. I mean, time was, you know, a controversial remark as the woman would be David Cameron telling Angela uh, Eagle, the uh, former <laughs> Labour minister, to calm down, dear. Yes, yes, I remember. And now, now we're at a point where even ministers are saying um, that there is a toxic mix of factors that's created a sexist culture. This is coming from the government of the day. And those uh, just were... to deviate for a moment, Mike, I mean, one thinks the American politics is becoming much angrier and more divisive as well. Is it somehow a more general thing, or do you think it is specifically British? I think each setting has its own specific comp- com- combination of factors. You are you are right that political rhetoric around the world has ramped up in terms of anger. Certainly Donald Trump did not shy away from making baseless allegations, for example. Yes. And on both sides, political rhetoric has become angry. It's even in comparatively uh, established democracies like the US and America, um, the common factor is, of course, that there is still a predominantly a certain type of person that does become a politician. It's, this tends to be a professional older man as well. There are many people in politics who go into it for the right reasons. And this is still, I believe, a minority, but the, the, the language and the partisanship has undoubtedly fueled this as well. And, and But there are certain bits in Westminster that are particularly unique and this is identified by the defense secretary today ben wallace who said the overall culture of the house of commons includes late night sittings long nights in bars and often leads to particularly for people who inhabit that world mm. and i can give a good example of this myself so i you know i've been in sporadically into the commons uh bars they are you know mps need somewhere to go to blow off steam but i can remember being in the bar and the now former mp gloria de piero walked in um and she was wearing a, a skirt and it, a lot of heads turned when she walked in as well. And that's a story that's always stuck me. This was, this was seven, eight, nine years ago. And you'd like to think we've moved past that now. But now we have stories, for example, allegations of a member of parliament watching pornography in a meeting. I mean, the time was, you know, an MP would be caught playing Candy Crush in a, in a select committee session as well. So there's real questions about, particularly from The Guardian, about whether or not this is another Me Too moment. It would be a cop-out, I say, to blame it on the overall culture in Parliament. I say there are certain bits that are conducive. Parliament sitting hours have changed. Fewer MPs go drinking. It, it does tend to be, you know, for example, I think a great example of how this was called out was the journalist Isabel Hardman, the assistant editor at The Spectator, a very well-respected member of the lobby, uh, when she was referred to as totty by uh, a senior Tory MP. She went to the whips and they handled it. But it really is entirely up to the... Um, the parliamentarians still to sort out their own behaviour. And there was a, a very important article that was out recently about the former MP, Charlie Elphick, who was found uh, guilty of a number of sexual misconduct claims after he left Parliament. Uh, and the Sunday Times detailing how a number of his colleagues, including his uh, ex-wife, who's now his successor, had, had rallied round him to try and protect him. And the fact that this is there you know, where does this leave the people who perhaps lack that sort of paranoia? Because if you are a member of parliament, you do enjoy privileges, you do enjoy certain protection, you can look to the party mm. and colleagues around you. The people who are really most vulnerable here are those who work for them, the staff to some extent, yes. the journalists as well. And we only have to look at the John Burko case to reflect that committed public servants like Lord Lisfane, 
KMs, who as parliamentary clerk I've done some work with, have a great deal of regard for. These are people who need to have their work and recognition protected. And we have to remove, in the same way that the expenses scandal held a mirror up to the self-policing nature of MPs voting on their own salaries and their own expenses, this moment has to be a point where there has to be a serious the muscular body outside of this where these complaints can be referred to. And they, they took the first step of this under Andrea Ledson's leadership when she was leader of the House and full credit to her as well for doing that. But this has to go further. We have to remove oversight of MPs entirely from the scope of parliamentarians. It has to be held by an outside body with the power to, to sanction MPs to remove them and a more robust system of recall. So people who are convicted of crimes like Imran Ahmed Khan cannot still be sitting on the green benches like Fiona Arsene. So their own resignation is not up to them. And if that means changing cultural factors too, so be it. But the time has come to show that the existing systems of self-policing, including mm-hmm. those that oversee the prime minister himself, are no longer fit for purpose. Where will the impetus for that come from? It has to come from MPs themselves. It has to come from, you know, across party recognition that particularly for the conservatives that the the last time they lost power in 1997 they were riddled with allegations of sleaze and this happens the longer a party's in government i think they become complacent this government has tried to use its majority for some very questionable things including protecting uh the former mp owen patterson Mm -hmm. from this as well and it's unusual because you know me. I take normally take a very constructive view of parliamentarians and politicians, and I'm lucky enough in the, in my job to work with them and a number of days. And the politicians I work with are, are all people of great integrity. I think they all people are in public service for the right reasons. But does the system protect the small minority of those who do perpetrate these issues? Does it allow them to determine the times of their own departure? Does it mean that the prime minister can try and upend the rules? Yes, and there is a Yes, there is a scale of these things. Boris Johnson's party gate overseeing is not as serious as sexual misconduct stuff by individual parliamentarians, but it cannot be, Westminster cannot be an entirely self-policing entity because at the end of the day, if we rely on this place, these people to make our laws, then they should be accountable to something other than the ballot box in between elections, other than the party whips. The old fashioned systems are no longer fit for purpose and we need a robust external body in a similar and this goes for anything from the vetting of peerages through to reviewing parliamentarians claims the standards committee should be made an independent statutory body staffed by people who are not politicians with power to review sanction and if necessary remove parliamentarians who break the rules have misconduct claims and break law but equally also offer those who are subject to those claims, whether and those who wish to make them a clear, transparent and satisfying process where resolution can be brought. And there is not, we're not, we're not resorting to the kind of disgusting innuendo that we've seen mm. around Angela Rayner in the tabloid press. Mike, a good moment for us to take a brief pause for breath. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio.
This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio. I'm in conversation with political commentator Mike Indian. Um, Mike, we're recording this a week before um, a raft of um, elections around the uh, UK. So presumably this is a chance for voters to show exactly what they think of our elected politicians. The tricky thing is local elections is that so, so as, as a whole, there is going to be elections happening across marginal metropolitan boroughs in England, a variety of different councils. There are a few county council elections, but mostly these are the main metropolitan areas, including mm. all London boroughs that were last up for votes in 2018. There's also going to be uh, elections in all local authorities in Scotland, Wales, and in Northern Ireland, the assembly elections as well. So there is a whole slew of things happening here. Inevitably, I think there's always go- the media are always going to be looking, particularly in London, they're going to be looking to for how this reflects national politics but working as i do with a number of colleagues who have campaigned locally most people that do vote in local elections because the turnout does tend to be lower than national elections around about one in five people vote as opposed to roughly one in uh, to roughly six out of ten in 60 percent of people in national elections or referenda that we've had some people will vote on national issues and and but i think predominantly the people that tend to vote in local elections will vote mostly on local issues on the competence of their council. So mm. where I live in Waltham mm. Forest, for example, there will be a lot of discussion around, say, low traffic neighbourhoods, around, and, and that's, I, I, that's, I think, as it should be. But of course, there, there is inevitably going to be a knock-on effect. And this is this is undoubtedly for the Labour Party, a chance for Keir Starmer to show that Labour under his leadership is making significant gains. The Tories are equally doing a degree of expectation management. They've been briefing that the Tories could lose 800 council seats. I don't know anybody who's who's well-informed on this, who takes that claim seriously. This is clearly designed to shore up the Prime Minister's expectations. And anybody who thinks that whatever the local election was, unless short of a catastrophic collapse of the Conservatives in all parts of the country, which isn't going to happen, in my opinion, because Boris Johnson's poll numbers are still quite robust, the Prime Minister will still be there. But inevitably, after this, we will be able to, I think, get a sense of where the country's at. I think if Labour are able to make gains, it does help transform the narrative and push Keir Starmer into looking like a winner, which he does need. And I, but I think arguably the most important test for me is going to be in the Wakefield by-election that happens a few weeks down the line. But the most important election that's happening probably for any single part of the UK is what's happening in Northern Ireland in the Assembly. And we are poised to see a major sea change there because... For the majority of times that, that for the sporadic power sharing periods that have existed since 1998 and the Good Friday Agreement, there has always been a unionist majority. The largest parties have always been the two unionist blocs, the DUP and the UUP. That looks set to change with Sinn Féin poised to become the largest party in the North Island Assembly, which would put them in pole position to have the first minister role. Now, the, the way the North Island Assembly works is across community entity the there has to be a uh, a nationalist and a unionist component in that so in practice for the last since 2007 it's been dup and the shin and Sinn fein working hand in hand uh with martin mcginnis and michelle o'neill and then you've had ian paisley peter robertson arlene foster and now uh, paul gervin who's largely just seen as holding the fort uh the dup are actually seeing their vote shrink there is they're under a great pressure Sinn fein are poised to make significant gains and emerge as the largest party which the DUP probably wouldn't like because they're then worried that, that the, 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 the S. Sinn Féin would then push for that referendum on Irish reunification which they don't want to happen. 
Look also what's happening with the smaller parties in Northern Ireland too. Look at what happens with Alliance, who are the only cross-community party as well. They're poised to do very, very well and could emerge as an important moderating force, but also the softer nationalist element of the SDLP. The big question is, is the unionist vote going to shore up the UUP in the short term? The five major parties involved have been involved in Northern Ireland's uh, government over the time. The UUP were the biggest unionist bloc as well. The big question is, will the DUP's votes move to the UUP and perhaps strengthen the more moderate unionist bloc in that sense? But still, the, the key components for this election, because unlike a lot of elections in the UK, Northern Ireland elections happen under single transferable vote. Uh, the counting will take place over the weekend. It may be that we emerge with another period of deadlock as well. And uh, Sinn Féin and the DUP, the DUP particularly, are playing party politics as never before because they are worried about losing that unionist majority in the Assembly for the first time since its constitution. Yes. Um, so when will we get the result at the end of the weekend? Yes, so the counting will happen over the weekend. We'll know most of the council results overnight, and there'll be a lot of clever sophologists, including undoubtedly John Curtis, extrapolating out national vote shares. But of course, as you and I know, even in a general election, it's where those uh, that vote share falls. So if, if Labour picks up votes in metropolitan areas, I would say actually that doesn't mean a lot. I'm going to look to see what happens in Wakefield to really see what happens in national politics. And of course, you could say by elections at individual contests as well. But this, if Starmer win, I'd argue if Starmer wins Wakefield by a substantial majority here, by 8,000 to 10,000 votes, which I think could be a possibility given the fact that Tory candidate has been so thoroughly disgraced, will A, know if Partygate is cutting through. And B, we will also have a sense that Labour can win back those Red Bull seats, which could put them in a position. Bear in mind, we, we often talk about Labour being in a majority, and I'm often wary about lowering the benchmark for Labour too much. But all they have to do is, decline, is, is deny the Tories an overall majority in England. Poll numbers of five to six points would put them on 300 seats, put them as the largest party and deny the Tories a majority. And don't forget, this government would be chasing its fifth term in office in 2024. Uh, Interestingly, with the Prime Minister coming under pressure regarding Partygate yet again with number of MPs in, in, in recent weeks pushing for him to resign, especially going at the number has come out, including Steve Baker, when this was uh, debated the other week. The Prime Minister is now under pressure again from Partygate. We know he's been uh, had his fixed penalty notice issued. We now know there are more of those to be coming. And we also know that Sue Gray's report is still hanging out there as well. Chris Bryant, the Labour chair of the Standards Committee, perhaps gave a more optimistic assessment that the Prime Minister could be gone by the end of May. I think Boris will hang around for longer than that. But interestingly, most interestingly of all, despite the fact that the declared aim of the Conservative Party is to have an election early in early in in in, in spring 2024, May 2024, number 10 are said to be wargaming the possibility of a general election as early as next year. Now, this would be designed to, because um, now the Prime Minister has that power again, the Fixed End Parliaments Act is gone. This is designed to wrong foot the Prime Minister's critics. And of course, the big question now is that given that Rishi Sunak's stock has plummeted so much in the last few months, that shallow base of support that he had, even though he has been cleared by Lord Guite, the Ministerial Standards Advisor, over not declaring the non-DOM thing, which is not something that Lord Guite's been able to do quite so much for the Prime Minister. The interesting question is, people like Jeremy Hunt have been talked up now. Liz Truss gave a major speech at the Mansion House talking about her position on Ukraine. The Tories may now have to start seriously thinking about, do they go for an earlier election with a flawed leader, which may risk 
you know, may cost them their big but shallow majority in England? Or do they stick it out and hope that someone else emerges in the longer run? Boris Johnson's interests and those of the Conservative Party are no longer in exact alignment. And that is the single biggest threat that this government faces, irrespective of whatever happens in a couple of weeks or at the Wakefield by-election or indeed at the next general election. Well, that sounds that sounds utterly fascinating. Of course, the last thing I think many of us really want is yet another of those prolonged leadership elections. The conservative ones seem to take forever. Yeah, they do. And this is why I think that, you know, Keir Starmer won't be removed unless Labour get, unless the Tories win a fifth term with a majority. He could still be prime minister. I mean, enough removing a Tory prime minister is actually comparatively easy because the Tory leadership election rules are put the power entirely in the hands of the backbenchers. And mm. of course, nobody knows. I mean, we, we've received these briefings from time to time about how we... Uh, what the level of these letters is, nobody knows. In yes. truth, um, but what is clear is that those members of the Conservative Party who have fallen out of love with Boris Johnson now feel that no- normally he'd be bulletproof in this time period. You know, but remember that the prime ministers who've gone on to win majorities have been got rid of pretty quickly. So you think, for example, John Major, nineteen ninety two, his stock fell, and he was you know, Boris Johnson could be in danger of becoming a major like figure presiding over a scandal hit government. You, Margaret Thatcher, after a third election, which three years later she was gone. David Cameron, 2015, surprise overall majority. The Tories didn't expect to get that one. That was their high point until then because they hadn't won one since 1992 at that point. Cameron was gone 15 months later. We're now two and a bit years since Johnson's major election victory. If the timelines bear out, you know, I wouldn't put a lot of money on the Prime Minister still being imposed by the end of the year unless he can find some way of weathering the scandals and if these start to call if these are evidence the ballot box in uh, we could be facing more than one by-election if a lot of these scan if a lot of these criminal investigations for mps come through people might resign if a lot of these happen to be in seats that are held by the Tories with some majorities and labor starts winning by-election after by-election after mm. by-election the narrative shifts away from boris johnson vote winner despite his many flaws to boris johnson liability and keir starmer yes rigid Yes, wooden, but a man of integrity who could win in Labour's heartlands. And that is the narrative that can change very quickly. Well, it'll be interesting when we talk again in a fortnight's time, Mike, to see just what has happened in the, the elections that are being held at the beginning of May. Um, we shall no doubt dissect it um, then and see what, if any, uh, implications are to be drawn from it. My thanks to Mike Indian, a political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog, who'll be back with me in a fortnight's time. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.